Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Oh, that's us, Mark. That's us, Mark. Well, that was pretty fancy, wasn't that? That um, that new introduction there. So, um, hope all our listeners like our little professional introduction we got done there. And uh, there's, um, you know, you may be wondering why we um, had that done. It's because we're lazy. We don't want to have to introduce ourselves, and we've got the similar sort of thing at the outro as well, which has a list of um, all our contact details, etc. So, yeah, it just makes it a little bit easier for us, and then we can talk our usual crap a little bit longer. Um, can't we, Mark? What have you been up to this week? It's the week ending January the 19th, 2018, episode number. What episode number is it? 14, yeah. What have you been up to, Mark? Mate, hasn't, the, the time is just flying past. I, it, I cannot believe we're past halfway through January already. Um, I've only just like perfected the 18 on the dates, writing down 18. I've just gotten over the, you know, that first part of the year where you just keep writing 17. Um, yes. So um, we've had, uh, we, uh, we've been really busy at work. We've had some really interesting cases. We seem to have had a little, um, uh, a little run of, um, of uh, seizure, seizuring animals of different sorts. And, um, and they've been uh, particularly trying, and and it would appear that they've um, had a bunch of different causes. We've had some um, some new epileptics amongst our uh, dog clients, um, and we uh, we we see lots of birds that have heavy metal intoxication, and generally they present to us as. Um, not doing well and uh, and often with um, gastrointestinal signs and general depression. Um, but um, we've had a, just a couple lately who have been seizuring uh, on presentation and uh, and they've responded well to chelation. Um, so, yeah, we've, we've, we've sort of been um, dealing with a few neurological cases, Brendan. Ah, interesting. I mean, we had uh, – well, I had one – neuro um, case last night which was a, and we spoke off air before the podcast started of a, a little two-month-old guinea pig that was having seizures and I, it's almost certain that it was probably hypoglycemic um, episodes with it um, and it was a very sick little guinea pig that ended up unfortunately um, passing away yeah um, I suppose my interest in I've, I've had a bit of a mix this week and um, um, one, one of the interesting ones I, I laughed thinking about it was a um, a uh, an older little terrier dog that um, came in um, that we hadn't seen for probably um, two years or so. So one of these um, clients who probably only comes in for the fire brigade sort of stuff, and she phoned up saying her her little dog's really really sore around its backside, and and she's um, she's a little bit off a of colour, and she she's straining and not wanting to go to the toilet. Um, she is pooing and weeing, but she doesn't want to to go because it seems to be sore to do either of those and um, I was in the morning when when she came in for the consultation with the little pup or the old old dog and um, lifted up its tail there and the whole perineal region was just one big mess of just um, just sort of festering um, skin and moist skin and really severe sort of um, purulent um, moist dermatitis there Um, and uh, clipped it all up there and um, kept clipping and kept clipping and then um, the maggots started coming out. Um, so it was one of those ones where, yeah, I think, oh, no wonder your dog's a little bit sore because it's fly bone, fly bone blown there. And I said, um, have a look at these little maggots. And she had to explain to the client what maggots were and, and where they come from. And, um, yeah, so the little dog went home a little bit happier, I think, once we'd spent a bit of time cleaning it up and, filling it full of some pain relief and some anti-inflammatories and starting it on some medication. So that was a that was probably one of the memorable ones this week, although we've had some a real mix of, you know, the, the usual sort of exotics that we see and the, 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 the reptiles and the small mammals and the and the ferrets and the turtles, etc. but also a, a fair number of um, dogs and cats actually um, this week. Yeah, so that's sort of my week. Um I forgot to mention we uh, we have a uh, we usually say hi to um, one group of our listeners, Mark, and this week 
jumped up onto the charts is Malaysia. Um, it's gone up to number four. So hello to all our listeners in Malaysia um, who are number four in our list of the um, countries um, where our listeners are or subscribers are from. And um, I am hoping to get over to Malaysia this year or, or next year for a bit of a teaching exercise, yeah, um, with the exotic vets over there. So hi to you all and don't forget to send me an email um, um, sh- up soon about those cases we spoke about recently. Um, I think we should jump into the news, Mark, because we're, I think the main topic we will end up spending way too much time as usual on. So the first news item is one that I picked out, and so I'll start with that one. And I think it's relevant um, because of another case that we um, saw recently as far as um, um, feedback from clients. And and the title of the the, uh, article is Coping with Vet Shaming, and it's by a fairly well-known American um, veterinarian, Dr. Andy Rourke. Um, We'll have the link to it um, on our web um, notes on the um, vetgurus.com website and um, reading part of the article there, one of the hardest things about being a doctor is constantly being told you are wrong. Our clients tell us that Dr. Google, the breeder or their mother says so and our colleagues debate online as to whether allowing clients to decline surgical uh, pre-surgical blood work makes you a bad doctor. So he talks about um, several things to say or not to say and, and how to cope um, with um, um, vet shaming and, and, and dealing with clients that, are, that are, aren't listening to what you're doing um, or suggesting to them. Um, so, and actually jumping around in the article there, I like one of the quotes here that um, he um, told the University of Florida Vet School class of 2015, if the explanation for what you're about to do starts with, against my better judgment, I, dot, 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 his advice is don't do it. So I think that's a really good one, especially for for new graduates in that um, it's always tempting, and I must admit I'm still guilty of that at times, of saying to clients, look, the ideal treatment for your dog or cat or or turtle or bird is to do X. but the client might, may have already hinted that they don't want to or can't stretch to the, the cost of it or don't want to do the procedure for some other reason. Um, um, there's a real temptation to back down and, and say and not offer the ideal to, 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 the, to the client um, regarding the patient. So I think it's really important to always consider and offer the best possible treatment um, um, not just because that's the thing to do um, for the patient, but also you're covering yourself too in case something goes wrong and you didn't offer the best. But getting back to the article there, it says um, they sort of have five or six sort of recommendations relating to this. Um, and the first one I do, I, I have used, um, and I think it's an excellent thing that that a lot of veterinarians don't think about or don't do, and that's number one is fire clients that make everybody's life miserable. Ask your staff, are there clients that make you not want to come to work? Here's a hint. If their name is on their caller ID, causes a clinic-wide groan and coin flipping for who answers the phone, that's your target. Decide who gives you the biggest headaches and let them go. Focus on spoiling your good clients rotten. Your staff can't concentrate on retaining clients with excellent customer service if they're required to be abused. And and I certainly try and try and like to practice that because, yeah, if I, if I have a Mr. or Mrs. Smith that um, I know every time they come come into my clinic and thank goodness we don't have or we rarely have these sorts of clients these days um, and if they're going to complain every time they come in they complain to the reception nurse they complain to me they complain probably to their family and friends when they get home um, then why bother having them as a client and, and we usually suggest to them that maybe we're not servicing your needs and that you consider go uh, go to another cl- uh, clinic, maybe Mark's up at um, up in um, New South Wales um, would be a good clinic to go to instead of our clinic. So I think it's good to sack clients that don't fit with you um, and it's not that it's not that they, they may not get um, veterinary care, it's just that you may not have the same personality or, or you may have a personality clash with that particular client. 
Um, uh, the next sort of that's the main one I wanted to concentrate with this particular article, but I'll quickly breeze through uh, the other ones. And, and one is talking about um, recommend um, blood work um, um, judiciously for, for animals, so so health profiles or, or health screens, um, because you'll often pick up um, um, abnormalities that you may not have seen otherwise, um, and. Also recommend more regular checks for animals that have obvious problems. It's something that we, um, um, it sounds obvious, um, and yet I think, again, I, I think I fail to do that sometimes. That's the good thing with the computer systems we have these days, isn't it? We have put those um, reminders automatically on the system. Um, uh, the other ones to sort of um, increase your um, satisfaction and, and, and make you a better vet, get involved with clinical trials was number four, um, weigh all of your patients at every visit, visit was number five. And I think, Mark, you and I certainly concentrate on that for all these small mammals and these birds that that may lose weight really quickly. Um, it's very important for those um, patients and especially those hospitalised ones that we weigh weigh them regularly and often more than just once a day with some of these animals with the fast metabolism. Um, number six, you look over records from other veterinarians all of the time. Um, so I think that just talks about how, how you, you see that um, see the um, uh um, referral cases or, or the his cl clinical histories you get from another clinic when it, when the client moved to, to your area with their pet. Um, have a look at the way um, the vets report the cases in, in, in their clinical history and see if there's something that you can learn from that. Um, and I think that's a that's an excellent idea because it's always good. I, I think that's one of the main things I do at conferences is is, is chat to the other vets there and, and try and learn tips and tricks and, and new ways of, of 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 not only diagnosing and and, and, and treating um, diseases, but learning how to how to do the customer service and dealing with clients. Um, so that was the first article, um, Mark. Um, um, I don't know where we got. Any particular com comments on that? Yep. There was two quick comments. I was going to just reiterate that primary point. I think that um, I don't think there's anything wrong at all with um, just uh, calmly suggesting to a client that um, that you make them unhappy and they make you unhappy and that uh, might be an idea if you part ways um, that uh, that you're obviously not providing the service that they're expecting and um, and uh, and it's just likely to cause more problems in the future and uh, and with respect we'll we'd like to um, not have that happen so we'll pass your record on to the veterinarian of your choice I think that's a great thing and I think it's actually um, uh, affirming for the staff that work for you i think they sometimes feel that um that you know they get to deal with the sharp end of this stuff i know at our hospital the by the time those clients get into the consult room they're often you know they've unloaded and and they're often much more respectful of the vets they get to speak to and the poor reception and front counter staff cop most of it and uh if you if you deal with the things that cause them the most grief and you know, often produce the least for your hospital. It makes everyone happy. And the other thing too is I think people shouldn't be afraid of losing clients. These clients almost, they may well go and tell their mates and um, and uh, their family that, um, that uh, you know, that it didn't work out and that they didn't think you were a very good vet. But it's almost certain that those people aren't going to be the same sort of people who don't pay their bills and whinge. Um, and you probably don't want them as clients as, as well. So I would not be afraid at all of, uh, of um, uh, parting ways and divorcing some clients from the practice. Yes, and I think it's exactly, and, and, and exactly the analogy I sort of used to, to staff would be um, similar to if a client asked ask me, um, where is the best place to board my dog? I'm going away for Christmas or a holiday period and I need to um, find a, a, a kennel or a cattery for my cat. Um, and I, we don't suggest any one particular boarding kennel or cattery and we'll say, um, have a look at these particular ones. If you like the feel of it and you seem to get on with them, go there. And if you don't like the feel of it, don't go there. And I think, you know, um, even with clients that are not as, as bad as some of the ones that we're sort of hinting at, um, um, you often have 
or not often, but you sometimes have personality clashes and the style of your veterinary practice may not fit that person and don't feel don't feel bad about letting them go and they'll find somewhere where they fit in and um, um, everybody will be happy, um, hopefully, in the long run. Yeah, so that's coping with vet shaming. Um, Mark, you have a little story. Oh, no, it's another bird story, isn't it? Um, it's about another an, bird story. An ID system based on what bird calls or something. Do you want to tell me about that one? I've got one word for you, Brendan. Shazam. This is um, awesome. Um, It's um, like I often take my iPhone with me when I go for my walks in the bush. Um, I've even been known on occasions when it's uh, not not a – an impost on normal behaviour to hang up a little Bluetooth speaker near a branch so that I could draw a bird down to a particular spot for a photograph. Um, and uh, and so bird calls are something that I pay a lot of attention to. Um, and one of the things uh, that frustrates me is that I don't know them all. And it's really – just it's one of those – it's like learning a new language. You've got to take time. Um, and uh, just like those uh, new devices you can pop in your ear and they do real-time translation, The um, what's the Douglas Adams? Um, Babel, Babel Fish. Or yes, yeah. that's the one. Um, I, I think anything that speeds up the you know the boring bit of learning um, um and and gets you to the exciting bit of understanding what's going on um is a, an excellent thing now it's always been a really difficult thing to uh apply the technology that's used in programs like Shazam the music identification app on your phone for bird calls or other species for that matter frog calls are another good one but this article, um, uh, published in the International Journal of, Journal of Computer Applications in Technology, makes some um, pretty interesting um, uh, uh, claims about uh, the 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 algorithms and the logistics of developing an auto- automated cer- system that circumvents the problems um, that are usually associated with bird calls. And interestingly enough, they uh, break the calls up into what I think are ridiculously small time frames, 10 millisecond audio frames, which are then um, constructed into syllables. Um, and uh, this apparently is a um, an extension of the the, uh, um, uh, the the programming that's used for identifying those recordings of music, music taking it another step. Um, yes. So, so the team did test their algorithm um, on samples of bird calls, um, and they particularly used that famous database Zeno Canto, which I use on a regular basis. Um, and uh, their preliminary testing. Um, uh, uh, revealed that they could, in fact, identify the birds with some reliability. Um, so um, I look forward in the very near future um, to being able to wander out in the bush and shazam that call um, and identify which bird that uh, that made it and, um, and then I'll be in a better position to take better photographs of them. Ah, excellent. So, yeah, we'll be looking forward to the app um, t- that's on your phone eventually with that. And I'll, uh, I mean, I, I'm just reading through that article now, Mark, and um, how could you not um, purchase an app from um, two people who produce it where their names are Artie Bang and Pretty <laughs> Reggae? Um, so if you had, uh, you know, Artie Bang certainly sounds like a, 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 um, a bit of a guru there in um, computational science. And what are you reading, International Journal of Computer Applications in Technology for, Mark? Well, to be honest, um, I've, and I've got it. This is a cat out of the bag. Um, uh, you know, uh, credit where credit's due. Um, yes. You already know that there are times when we're getting ready for this podcast where I have not done my homework, and you have a number of these ones that that obviously they've caught your eye, and you go, "That just reminds me of Mark," and you flick them to me, and I 
insincerely present them as my own homework. So, um, so yes, I, I take this opportunity to thank you for uh, – it, it actually amazes me how well you do find these articles that, um, that uh, you know, if I did have the time to go searching through the International Journal of Computer Applications in Technology, they would be the exact <laughs> article I would bring up. You know me, um, you know me too well. I think you um, are downplaying yourself a bit there, Mark. Um, you find a fair number of these articles as well. Having said that, the third article is one that um, caught my eye and the title of it is Nature's Smallest Rainbow Found on Australian Spider's Butt. And um, as soon as I saw that, it was good clickbait, as you would say, Mark, um, and reading from that article. Um, and again, you know, I... These must be made-up names. Some of no, these, I've, you know, the, the senior writer here is Brandon Spector. Um, <laughs> it sounds like something out of a, a James Bond film, this guy. Um, when a male Australian peacock spider wags its bottom at you, it's impossible to look away. In the throes of courtship, the spider's glittering, um, badonkadonk shimmers with all the colours of the rainbow, diffracting intense iridescent light like a living Lisa Frank sticker. Um, and scientists call the spectacle nature's smallest rainbow. In fact, peacock spider bodies measure at most five millimetres, which is 0.2 inches long, according to a paper published online on the Journal of Nature Communications. Um, it's got some very pretty pictures of the spider's butt in this, um, and um, they mainly looked at the. Um, they took a closer look at the um, iridescent scales using a variety of imaging techniques to try and understand the unique rainbow scattering properties of it. So there you go. Um, I thought that was a quite good one. That was originally published on the Live Science, but we'll have the have the little link to that um, particular one. I, I like those silly little stories, Mark. Well, I, 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 don't, I, don't, I don't think that one's silly at all, Brendan. I think the the, the um, species of spider involved, the, the whole, that genus occurs all the way across Australia, but the one that is most studied um, is just like on the central coast is the hot bed of um of uh, peacock spider peacock um jumping spider um activity and there's a number of facebook pages that do nothing but take photographs of these uh these beautiful spiders and and you know um my interest in photography has largely been directed through the telephoto lens but just recently i have been working my macro and uh doing some handheld uh, a series of photos and stacking them in Photoshop with a view to heading down to the Central Coast and taking photos of these very spiders. So there you go. It's not funny at all. It's a great endeavour. So you live in the hotbed of spider butts, do you? <laughs> the um, rainbow spider butts. butts. Yeah, that's right. Well, I look forward to some of those photos, Mark. Um, and and um, if they're if they're worthy of publication, then we may even put one or two in our um, podcast. There, um, I look forward to it. Um, your, uh, I must admit, your, um, and I mentioned to you um, when you came and visited over the Christmas period, your um, your um, bird photography is is pretty amazing these days. And I remember when you first started doing it, um, you were struggling to sort of get um get them roughly in focus now and um yeah some of the shots you've posted recently are, are amazing to say the least so well done i wish i was that good with my particular <laughs> um photography um area that i'm interested in so enough um self-aggrandizing let's get on to the next story mark what um oh, you, is it mine or yours yeah it's yours lethal bat fungus what do you want to tell us about that and so this is one that has come from Science Daily. It's a report on um, on maybe a uh, breakthrough in the treatment of the white-nosed syndrome that has been decimating the populations of microbats in North America. So if th those people in our, our listeners in North America will already be aware of this, but um, there is a disease that over the last few years has been really knocking the populations of, um, of microbats uh just um, decimating them all across North America. And this has an impact because these bats are such prodigious consumers of uh, 
um, pesky insects, and that they also play uh, a some of them play a role in the the uh, fertilization of some plants. Um, the the death of large numbers of these bats has profound implications for um, you know the the uh, environment in North America. And what's happened has been a uh, fungus, um, which I can hardly pronounce, Pseudogymnoascus destructans, um, uh, has been um, infecting. It has a very particular temperature uh, range. It, it infects the bats that are hibernating when they're um, temperature is lower than usual, and um, it infects their um, upper respiratory tract, their nose, and then grows through the nose all over the face. And so these bats are um, uh, uh, um, permanently damaged and die from the fungus infecting those structures in their head. Um, but it would appear that um, – so the fungus has arisen from Asia and Europe where um, it would appear that it's – um evolved with the bats native to those areas. And so um, it uh, causes some problems occasionally, but it actually doesn't like knock out huge numbers of the bats. But in North America, which uh, obviously is a naive population, once it's gotten there, it's just caused trouble. But these researchers have discovered that the fungus does appear to be highly sensitive to ultraviolet light. Um, so the, one of the problems is that treating any of the bats has been a real hassle because once they're hibernating, any interference with the bats is is um, deleterious to them as well. So you can't grab them and treat them with medication because they warm up and wake up and it's the wrong time of year, they can't eat, they die. So it's been very challenging to find a, a potential uh, process by which they could enhance the survival of bats that uh, might be affected by white nose syndrome. So I've got this vision of scientists yes. wandering through caves and dark buildings all across the north uh, US with um, a laser, uh, with a lightsaber-like um, uh, weapons, pointing them at the various bats roosting in the roofs of those dark places and uh, rendering the fungus sprouting from their nostrils dead. Um, so uh, I don't know exactly that's the way it'll work, but um, at the moment, um, uh, the, the, uh, the, the, the bats that have um, white fungus disease and are treated with um, an exposure of ultraviolet light. Um, uh, that's improved survival, um, and and that's probably the, um, the you know by about fifteen percent, um, and even a moderate dose um, uh, improved. That, like once they're infected, it's been zero percent survival. One percent survive with a moderate dose. Um, so, yeah, I think um, uh, this may well present uh, um, a, uh, a, a weakness, a Achilles heel for the, the fungus and hopefully save enough bats that they can develop a resistance and the population can recover. That would be great and it would be, a you'd think, a cheap, a cheap um, solution to the problem if they're just using UV lights um, to, um, to help um, treat that... that um, Horrible fungus, yeah. No, it's a great story, that one. I love it. Um, and the final news story is um, Richard Branson's Koala Conservancy, um, and there was an update on that. And for those of you who don't know about Richard Branson's Koala Conservancy, it's based on um, um, he, he has a little private island. Well, he has sev several private islands, doesn't he, Richard Branson? And um, Make Peace Island is his private island um, in Australia, which is just off the um, – or it's actually not off the coast. It's just in a little tributary, I think, on Australia's Sunshine Coast in Queensland. And the Great Barrier Reef is about half, away, half an hour away by charter flight from there. And he has um, ploughed some money into his little koala – Conservancy um, 
studies and i'll just read a little bit about the program and the update that they um, um they did a pilot project and the update was um just posted um now which is january 2018 um and it's a scientific and education program with a focus on mitigating koala mortalities with an emphasis on koala health as well as investigating areas within the noosa region which is where the where the little island is for its suitability as a long-term koala refuge um and make peace island will serve as a base for scientific koala research projects given its proximity to koala habitat along the noosa river river catchment area the conservancy will establish a multidisciplinary approach to local koala efforts and will work collaboratively with governments as well as scientific and community groups um, and the pilot project update just briefly um, they released this um, little report and they've completed their first full year of activities and details of the pilot program and they um put $75,000 into it um, to investigate the population there and the aims of the initial pilot program were to focus on population investigation and management by getting an understanding of the status of the population there, determining disease rates and mortality um, threats and causes and, um, and it commenced initially with koala spotters and catchers, um, catching them and um, they caught up some um, koalas to monitor them um, in it. It looks like they only caught five adult koalas um, initially for it and they put trackers on them and they just followed them. So they're, so they're just getting a bit of a feel for what the habitat is and where, where those um, koalas are, are, are roaming over and um, looking at um, some of the disease threats to them, including chlamydia um, with them and um, vehicle um, strikes as well. Um, they're worried about it in that area. So, um, yeah, I think it's good. But I think it's another um, – and there's a nice cute picture there of Richard Branson um, – um, um, cuddling a koala and um, as we sort of mentioned in one of the previous um, podcasts it's always um, quite easy to get um, people to support cute and cuddly and koalas are certainly cute and cuddly um, but it's good I'm, I'm glad they're doing it and I'm looking forward to Richard inviting me um, to make Peace Island there um, um, you if you want to go to the island um, usually you have to um, Higher, basically the whole island, and markets a nice um, $5,500 per night um, for oh, up to yeah. four guests. Um, so I'm looking forward to Richard inviting me up there and we can um, have a little chat about koalas and we can do a live pop, uh, record a podcast from there. And um, yeah, and it includes. It's pretty good, actually. It includes all meals and accommodation and your private private chef. Um, Koala so, researcher yeah, was on the radio up here in, yeah, so, in Newcastle yeah. this afternoon. There's um, they um, because I, I'm, now I'm going to say something that I'm might not be able to verify as fact immediately, but um, I think that the name koala came from one of the Aboriginal languages, which meant no drinking. You know, not not drinking water, no water, um, because they lived in the tree. But um, what this research in New South Wales has discovered is that um, if they place waterers in koala habitat, um, the koalas will come and drink from them. So the sort of, you know, dripper that we use for our guinea pigs, they've been sticking those in trees and koalas have been using them. And actually it's improved, well, it appears at this stage that it's improved um, survivability in these sometimes very, very hot days. So who knows in the future whether um, Richard Branson might have to have some guinea pig water as placed in the trees on his island. Uh, interesting. Well, if they end up there, then we know who um, who made that happen. Um, it was Mark, and um, I can see you lying back there with a with a um, little cocktail with a with an umbrella in it, um, but beside the little lagoon pool there, Mark. Yeah. So, no. So there you go. That was the last little news story. Gee, we better. Um, get moving on in a second talk about our main topic but i do have a product review this this week mark which i was going to um talk about last week but um we ran out of time and that is something that i think all veterinarians and all veterinary students should have especially those in the australasian region but even those not in the australasian region should consider getting it 
Why? Because it's free, number one, and two, it's a fantastic resource. And it is called the Australasian, excuse me, Animal Parasites Inside and Out. So it's a parasitic textbook or an e-book. Um, there's two diff- different editions um, of it. There's a standard edition which um, has interactive elements. Basically, you click on it and it goes to has some little pop-outs and the standard edition or single-page edition also has um, bookmarks and hyperlinks to web pages and that. But it is fantastic. I came across this um, on advice from a a, um, a, a very um, famous Australasian um, parasitologist, um, Ian Beveridge, Professor Ian Beveridge is a wildlife pathologist, um, because I was quizzing him about some parasites in a little um, stumpy tail lizard. But that's a story for another day. Um, and he put me onto this little um, um, free ebook. It's fantastic. So we'll have the link at our website um, with the show notes, um, vetgurus.com. And um, yeah, it's great, a great resource. Um, it was originally written, so it's, it's made, it was developed um, by the Australian or the Australasian Society for Parasitology um, as, a, as an educational um, um, text um, for student veterinary students mainly and bio, biology students, um, but it, it, it's wonderful. It's really good. I wish I had that when um, I was studying parasitology at university. Um, I think way back when I did um, veterinary science, Mark, um, it was a five-year course, um, bachelor degree, and I think it was probably the same for you. And I remember parasitology was second year um, in in um, our course, and I remember a few vivid things from second year. And one was um, um, we used to have parasitology um, tu- tutorials late in the afternoon um, where everybody would be a bit antsy and they wanted to go home and I remember um, very vividly that one day we were having the tutorial by a very another famous um, Australian parasitologist who I will not name here, um, and um, one of the other students decided, look, we've had enough of this, let's just lock him in the room. And um, I forget how they did it, but we all sort of managed to trick him and, and wander out the room and we shoved a broom handle or something um, in the door there and um, he was locked in the room and it took him several hours until somebody else came into that tutorial room to let him out, um, which is probably why I didn't get such a good mark for parasitology, I think, um, in second year. Yeah, so there you go. So um, Australasian Parasites in and out Australian Society of Parasitology. So everybody should download it. I know, Mark, do you I'm, know of I'm that particular publication? Reviewing it. Did you give it a score, Brendan? Uh, score. Well, okay. So the, what the, the positives are it's an excellent publication. It's free. The negative is um, it, it still needs a little bit of work. Um, for one of the sections that I was looking at, um, there was a couple of a little bit of a misprint um, and and, and um, the page numbering went a little bit um, funky in it. And also it does not yet include um, parasites of reptiles. Um, that was going to be one of the next big projects that would get added to it, um, which I think um, the parasitologist who, who spoke to me about it sort of maybe it was hinting that I should help out with producing that particular, but I didn't bite on that one. Um, so um, apart from those um, um um, comments, yeah, it's it's a very solid wow. nine point three. I think it's a fantastic resource, and if you have a look through the the, the fantastic color plates through it and and um, diagrams, and it is just so clearly written and 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 beautifully written that it, it is it is a an excellent publication, and the fact that it's free just pushes it over the nine to the well. 9. If they had a Patreon, yeah. we'd be able to like give them some money to get the reptile stuff done. That's right. That's right. And let me jump into our Patreon link, link patreon.com forward slash vetgurus. And this is where you can um, um, throw us a bone or send us a little bit of money. And we've, 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 divided it into different rewards or donations. So this has given us a little bit of money every month to help um, fund our podcast. And um, the smallest reward is a bug. You can can become a bug um, for one Australian dollar per month. Um, you can support us. Um, and there's other rewards, a rabbit, a kangaroo, a bit of dragon, an echidna, a guru, 
um, is the biggest one. Um, so have a look on there and, you know, one day, Mark, we will get a patron. We will get a patron. I don't know when, but we will get one um, at some stage. Um, so I think we should jump in um, for this last 15 minutes or so to um, our little um, main topic today, and it's one you suggested. Oh, I did so suggest I it, and I, when you it, first um, we sent me the name, I thought uh, of our podcast, An Eerie Feeling. I thought you were talking about my bat um, my bat news, um, that, but I, now I realise the pun that you were playing and, <laughs> and I'm, I'm chortling away in the background. <laughs> yes. But I did um, have uh, the opportunity to do some surgery on a number of ears this week and I thought it would be a, uh, a good thing for us just to maybe have a talk about some of the, the – um, the, the um, technical aspects, maybe some of the um, uh, unusual things that happen in some of our exotic species. But I thought to start with that we'd have a little talk about oral hematomas um, in our, um, our traditional companion animals, particularly dogs. Um, and because I've got this fascination with the fact that every person that I, every vet that I speak to who has worked in England. Um, treats their oral hematomas by draining them with a, a needle and then injecting some long-acting corticosteroids, some depomedrol in, and the damn things heal. And when they return to Australia and try the same thing, it never works. Um, so I, I'm, I'm interested in your opinion on this, Brendan. Is, is, it a, is it a fact that the oral hematomas in Australia are intrinsically different to those that occur in the UK? Well, you've thrown me a curveball there, Mark, because w when you mentioned the topic was going to be oral hematomas, I thought, gee, I remember the day when the craze was inject corticosteroids directly into the hematoma, if you remember. And there were a couple of pub papers um, or, or short short articles published in journals regarding that, wasn't there, that um, you would just inject a bit of cortisone straight into the hematoma and, and it would help organise the clot and it would reduce the swelling and then it will um, all settle down without even taking it to surgery. And I thought, gee, that's fantastic. We don't have to open these up anymore. And I probably tried it with a dozen or so um, at the time and then gave up because it didn't seem to do much at all. Um, so interesting, yeah. Um, um, yeah, um, so do we have different hematomas in Australia? Is the uh, um, um, flora and fauna um, different? Um, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I, I, my, what is my standard technique? It's it's probably the traditional one where I make a, an incision there and I use those hematoma pads. Um, I remember in the first practice I worked at, we used to use the, um, and I, I know a lot of practices still do it, the the X-ray film um, and using that to help um, flatten down the flatten down the um, um, the pinner and and keep it um, open and, and flat so we don't end up with a cauliflower ear. Um, but these days I use a, I think it's a Buster brand um, hematoma pads, which is sort of a sponge-like pad that I do those mattress sutures through the year. So it's probably a, a traditional approach that a lot of people use and I so, find so good when results you do with your that. Incision, um, the first, um, is it is it a uh, – there's yes. sort of two schools of thought as I understand it. They're, they've got to be bold. You've got to go all the way, you know, the, any pockets in the hematoma are a bit of a risk. So, But um, some people like to do an S-shaped incision and other people like to do a, a – uh, you know, a, um, a longitudinal, a straight longitudinal incision. Um, so do you have a preference for one over the other? No. <laughs> no. I, <laughs> I usually just do it based on where the hematoma is. So it tends to be just a longitudinal incision. Um, and when you were talking about the S-shaped, I, I think – Again, that must have been written up somewhere in an article because I remember saying, oh, gee, that's a good thing to try, and I, I did the, the fancy sort of wavy S, S one for a, a while there. But, no, I just based it on where the hematoma is and then um, cut away a, a, a bit of section there of the skin so we, so it isn't fully closed when I put the mattress sutures in there, um, yeah, to, to um, drain and and. and pull away those little what little fibrin clots or whatever they are there those little adhesions and 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 um, 
suture it down. Which um, so which yeah, suture um, material? Because um, I find in my hands the nature of the suture material makes a big difference. Um, I find that um, if I use, there seems to be uh, a um, an elasticity that I get from nylon that I don't get from other suture materials, and um, and that seems to um, make a difference to how I'm able to keep the knots tight and maybe um, uh, maybe not not annoy the dog so much, I find, um, if I use nylon sutures um, 2O or O nylon sutures. Um, do you have a preference for one suture material? So do you – so are you saying that you yes. prefer those nylon yeah. ones and another, yep. than another type of suture material? Okay. Um, I, I – I well, I, I think I I sort of alternate. I don't think I particularly use one or the other. Um, I do, you know, the standard sort of skin suture that we have on on a cassette reel is a is one of those typical sort of braided um, type type suture materials. Um, and I must admit, I do use that a reasonable amount of the time. But sometimes I do reach for that um, almost like a proline type. Um, swedged on needle um suture pack as well so no interesting comment no i haven't really thought about that as far as the give because i i know that some of them if i don't that tension can be a little bit tricky can't it to 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 sort out that it's not too tight or not too loose because if it is too loose i think it's prone to prone to um reform in there and if it is too tight even with the buster pads or the or, or hematoma pads whatever brand you go for there's a tendency that you still may get some um, um, damage to the actual skin there and, and potential necrosis and certainly um, and the certainly the, so I, my experience is if you get that if they're excessively tight it annoys the dogs immensely more and and uh, and that leads me to one of the other things uh, um, the duration of the the um, application of the splint to the ear. We, we um, you know, obviously for most skin sutures, we're talking um, uh, 10, 12, maybe 14 days in most dogs. But um, for <coughs> for these ones, excuse me, um, we're usually trying to lead people in the assumption when we first put them in that they're likely to be there for three weeks. And so if, uh, if they are too tight, then often the dogs will get very annoyed by the time they get to 15 or 20 days. Yeah, I'd yeah, I, my general thoughts are we leave it for a bare minimum of two weeks. I'm pretty similar with you there, and and probably end up taking out those sutures um, in in three weeks. Um, yeah, um, so pretty close to what you you're doing there, Mark, with those. So no, I don't. I, yeah, so um, yes, you've you've um, piqued my interest again. Your your comment about um, what what um, what what happens in the UK oh, well, and I have a theory. What does or doesn't theory. work in here. <laughs> um, Okay, I knew it was coming. So, what is the theory? Now, we we must. Having said that, we we need to um, have an email reply for one of our UK listeners confirming whether or not that is still the case that um, that particular procedure is undertaken where they inject the corticosteroids um, for the oral hematomas in dogs in the UK. So, please send us an email vetgurus at gmail.com um, with, with a comment My on that. theory yes, Mark, what's is the, theory? the occurrence of oral hematoma in the UK is um, has some form of immune-mediated um, factor involved in it, that there's some um, line of dogs or some thing that allows the corticosteroid to have an effect that it doesn't have on the Australian dogs where the warmer weather and the... Um, higher incidence of allergens means that it's more commonly an irritated ear and head shaking, a physical trauma, which leads to the development of the oral hematoma. So I think there's actually, um, my theory, my hypothesis is that there's a different etiology leading to the same condition in each country. And that's why different treatments might work. What do you think, Brendan? Hmm. <laughs> I think like, it's like most of my uh, theories. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, if well, if it is, if it, if that procedure is performed commonly in the UK and they do get good results, then yeah, why 
does it not seem to work um, well, in Australia? I'm just there like must you, when, it first, when I was yeah, first told, I thought, crikey, he's trying to convince people to do this procedure and have an anaesthetic and look after the ear for three or four weeks. If I can just jab it, that's going to be awesome. And like you, I did it maybe a dozen times and it didn't work once. So, yes. Interesting. Okay, so speaking of ears, um, not necessarily hematomas, what is the okay. most common – I'm going to put you on the spot now. What is is the most common ear um, condition, not necessarily a full-blown disease that you see in uh, Well, I, all the time – this is really interesting because it would be a regular – occurrence for me to be presented with a ferret that has um, a lot of black, hard, dark, tarry wax, and the owners have done their vet shaming and Google search, and they come in to, uh, to get some agent to get rid of the mites. Um, but I, I, honestly, I very, very rarely see um, uh, ear mites in ferrets, even though it's a well-published thing. And I think um, uh, those, um, the majority of the ferrets that we see that have those black, tarry, crusty ears probably are suffering um, some form of allergic reaction, much like the dogs that get malatesia. So, um, so I, I suspect you were going to talk about mites, but I don't see them. No, my 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 experience is exactly the same as you, Mark. Um, I think probably nine or nine and a half out of ten, if that's possible, ferrets that come in have dirty ears, um, and we have those brown brown gungy black ears. And um, virtually every ferret that comes in for surgery of any any sort, every single ferret needs their ears cleaned. And and yeah, um, um, it's rare that I'll find the um, the mites in those ears. Um, I must admit, one of the things I was thinking of doing at one stage as a bit of a clinical um, case study was to um, do swabs on on a fair number of them and not just do in-house um, cytology but uh, send off for, for cultures as well. And I still think it's something that would be a good thing to do to see what's happening in there and what sort of um, bugs we're getting in there and whether it is an amalocesia or whether whether it is an allergic-type reaction. As, well, I, as I, reckon, potentially hint, I reckon another um, research angle could be that we look at, because I've got, I don't know, uh, maybe a dozen ferrets at the moment that are on um, long-term uh, prednisolone for uh, treatment of their insulinoma. Um, and I'll, I, I'd be interested to just like look at those ferrets that are on pred and see if they're um if they how what their ears are like whether the pred actually um has an effect at decreasing that uh, gungy i think you would have a few ferrets on pred wouldn't you brendan yes 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 and it's something i haven't been comparing but i haven't been looking to see whether the ones that are on prednisolone are worse or better with, with regarding their ear um, conditions and the grotty ears that we see um you know um off the top of my head um i think i see grotty ears in all of them but yeah whether it's worse or, or a bit better while, while they're on the pred I, I do not know yeah so i think it's something i have to start documenting in the case records for for ferrets that are coming in so it's another little um um, um, another little um, to do. thing we need to add to the list of things to, to record, to do, yes. And um, I need to come up with a theory, Mark, a theory um, to, to why it's happening. Um, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that's interesting. So it was a bit of a, a, a bit of a, um, a bit of a loaded question, but um, you're finding okay, exactly the same. As, and the, as, and the as, case as, that as, led me towards ears to start with was one of our wonderful rabbits. Um, Flopsy has uh, has been a bit of a head tilt rabbit for uh, quite a few months and just gradually getting better. But recent radiographs showed some horrible destruction of the um you know, we couldn't get a scope down the ear canal to start with, and um, and the uh, the bulla was um, horribly lytic and you know um, packed with uh, material, and so we elected to do a, uh, a, a tika total canal ablation, and um, and it was 
bloody exciting surgery, Brendan. I've got to tell you that um, that my heart heart rate was pumping along, um, and I had but like you know I, I felt that at the start of the surgery I was I was doing very very well. I um I uh, managed to dissect out the proximal part, the 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 um, most superficial part of the canal really well, and um and managed to trap most of the parlant material, all the parlant material within the dissected um dissected uh tissue um and um and i managed to work my way down and and uh as we all know rabbits don't have the same vertical and horizontal structure that our dogs do but i worked down to the um the ossified part of the ear canal right down um deep but as i got there the 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 surgery went to crap and um and of course i i my heart rate just went faster and faster um and um and we had to dissect out you know something of the order of uh half a teaspoon of parallel material that was just um all through and the, the further i went through the little fissures in the muscles below the the uh, the tympanic bulla which just literally you know i could see it on the radiographs but um it just was gone i you know i could see part of the bony structure but it was gone yes um and and i all of the of the whole time in my mind i'm going i'm macerating all the surrounding tissue and particularly those nerves um the uh the, the um facial nerve that passes nearby is just going to be gone yeah. and um and i'm going to set poor flopsy back after um having almost got uh back to normal but um with, with huge amount of flushing um uh we 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 uh warmed saline um with a little bit of um uh pressure on a needle to um form a little bit of jet to try and break up some of the parallel material that was sticking to various structures um so we were uh, we, with suction we were able to get like quite a volume of water in there and and uh and lift um a large amount of the pus we couldn't spoon out out um and um we left a a, a couple of antibiotic impregnated beads in in situ um we closed the canal down i know that's a little bit of a point of um of controversy amongst uh surgeons that do this procedure some leave it open for uh, marsupialize the the abscess, but um, in this case, I um, closed it down. Uh, that's not a procedure I've done before. I've often um, left these surgeries uh, wide open to heal by second intention. Um, and lo and behold, Flopsy's been the best she's been for years. With me poking my finger way down in the middle bits of her head, I'm just over the moon with the way she's recovered. So... So uh, these well surgeries, does that description match um, your protocol, Brendan? Well, yes. I mean, so, <laughs> well, in that everything goes to to crap once you start the surgery. You look in the textbook and you see this fantastic little dissection of, of the procedure you're doing, and and once you make your first incision, um, it looks nothing like um, what the anatomy text. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, uh, with those rabbit ones, I, I've 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 done a few. Certainly not not hundreds of them, that's for sure. And um, I think you have to take it on an individual case. And by the sound of it, you just had to improvise as you went, and you did a fantastic job. And and I think you're underselling yourself on how well that one, one particular one went. Yeah, um, and and I think we spoke about this case, didn't we, um, earlier this week or last week? And um, we both have that. Um, Ebook by Vittorio Capello, which is fantastic. That is about um, ear surgery and rabbits. Ear surgery and rabbits. The title of it, Mark. Um, yeah, well, there you go. Um, and um, he, he has some an great little videos in that ebook. I don't think it's um, freely available anymore. Yeah. Is that? No, it isn't. Originally it was. Um, I think um, we'll have to put a link to that. I might try and put it in these show notes, but they may be in the future show notes. Um, yeah, and it has fantastic videos about the, all the different the total ear canal ablations, the lateral ear resections, etc. And, um, yeah, he's he's pretty bold with his surgery too, Alvatorio, um, the way he does them. And I think sometimes you have to be... 
you have to be bold in order to um, get the job done. It's like my superialization and, and rabbit dental um, work. You need to sort of just bite the bullet and just just get in there and get that get that abscess out and aggressively debride and remove those teeth. Yeah. So no, I, I you know I, I I'm glad it wasn't me, Mark, and and um, a good result in the end. Um, um, fantastic. Yeah. Um, I think the one that. Um, the total ear canal ablation one that I um, that I had the best success with um, died fairly recently, but that f- rabbit um, was um, just over ten, and I think I did the major surgery on it. It was a miserable rabbit. Once we did that um, with with the with the ear problem, um, and once we did the surgery, it was a much happier rabbit, and it lived for about another three years. And um, so I think I did the surgery when it was about seven years. So um, yeah, don't be afraid to 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 um do these surgeries with some of these things i think is the bottom line with that if it if it looks an unhappy animal and we've got a chance to fix it then then maybe we should um, bite the bullet and see if we can fix it yeah i mean we have to choose our cases that's for sure and um and i'm sure some go wrong and i've had some that have gone drastically wrong and they end up getting the nystagmus and 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 the middle inner ear conditions um and um, end up potentially um, having to be um, put to sleep. But, um, you know, you need to choose your cases. But, yeah, no, um, I, I, I don't think there's anything else I would have done um, that that you've done there. I mean, you're you're a good surgeon, so, I, I, um, yeah, I can't oh, teach you I learn something new sort of every time yeah. I talk um, to you, Brendan. <laughs> not, not about veterinary science, I don't think. Um, we were going to talk about some other ear disease problems in unusual pets, and I, I, what do I have on the list there? I was going to talk about turtle ear conditions, but we might have to leave them to another time because we're we're just about out of time for our allotted one hour. And um, I want to start playing our fancy new outro, um, and here we go. So I better shut up. And thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Um, and don't forget to listen to the end of this outro. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time. Thanks.